This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There are a few new reports that are exploring the intersection of climate change and personal safety. One of them is explicitly about climate change and national security. I know, pretty heady for a Monday morning. Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McQuig can offer up a little bit more context. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. So, Michelle, like I said, a little bit heady on a Monday morning and considering that both of you, both of us are coming off illness right here. We'll see if we can put this together. We'll see if we can cobble yes. our brains together on this one. <laughs> but generally speaking... And uh, worth noting that if we can't do this properly, I'm a good thing. My colleague Jim Bronskill has a nice clear article for everyone to look oh, at if we're not making a whole lot of sense. <laughs> J- Jim is elite at doing stuff like this. Like he is, He's literally one of the top journalists in the country on CSIS and foreign security matters. Yeah, so, really, yes. really, really good. Okay, Michelle, Generally speaking, what did CSIS have to say about that that relationship between climate and national security? So earlier this year, they released a report saying that there was an explicit connection between the two and that climate change was going to pose a number of security risks. What it didn't offer was a whole lot of detail as to how, and that, of course, is what a lot of us would go to how does this work? Why, why would this be a problem? Those reasons came out this week, and they're a bit more... They're not incredibly detailed, but they are still quite interesting. It talks about Canada being at risk from foreign actors. Canada is considered in this context a climate leader, and it's, it, it discusses risks in terms of being posed by disruptors or people who would want to sort of compete with Canada's agenda on that front. So it talks about Canada being at risk from disruptors on energy security, say if uh, foreign parts makers for things like solar um, excuse me, for solar machines or whatnot, we can't, we can't obtain parts for what they need there, or for foreign actors who might want to come after Canada's own energy supplies or target our own research into energy materials. Um, Canada is, of course, another another big area of risk is Canada being a presence for critical minerals, which everyone's going to be coming mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. in the next little while as they as they shift towards EV expansion, Canada itself included. So that poses a risk in and of itself. Um, there, uh, there, there was discussion about Arctic sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Arctic sovereignty. I truly yeah. can talk. I t- promise. Tongue, tongue, yeah. t- tongue twister when you haven't been able to breathe properly in a week. Yeah, the, 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 forget, the, do forgive me, but no, yeah, that no. one's that's. <laughs> The, the Arctic sovereignty yeah. side of it is really interesting, Michelle, because like, I, I think things like scarcity of resources, okay, natural water supplies, natural resources, that's going to be something that's going to naturally come to mind as a matter of demand. What are you doing to protect scarce natural resources? But things like Arctic sovereignty in a changing climate, I don't think that people have necessarily pinned climate and national security in that region so explicitly until I read this report. Yeah, probably not. Arctic sovereignty is one of those weird ones that comes up now and again. It, it sort of sort of cycles in and out of political favor. You might recall the Harper government was pretty keen on asserting Canada's Arctic sovereignty and claims to some of those northern tracts of land. Um, but in this case, the, the what CSIS outlines is that as infrastructure changes, as the permafrost melts, um, and and 
things become more accessible to a broader number of countries, you're going to have more players trying to stake claims in some of the areas where Canada has traditionally had things things more or less to themselves. Right, yeah. Um, so that's the way in which the Arctic sovereignty threat would play out as CISA sees it. Yeah. So again, Jim Bronskill did a killer job on this. We can only do so well this morning, but I think that's a nice little entree point into thinking about national security and climate as opposed to sort of individualistic security, which is what this next story is going to be about mm -hmm. rather, rather than simply thinking about uh, that, thinking about the bigger picture. Really, really cool. Really, really, really cool. I mean, frightening, but cool uh, because that's the world that we live in. Yeah. Frightening, but cool. Uh, Michelle, yep. the, the, the next report is a bit more of the micro level. It, it falls a little bit more into the personal safety side of things, but it does talk about standards. And this is in regard to wildfire mitigation. Maybe some of this info isn't necessarily groundbreaking, but what are some of the recommendations on this wildfire mitigation? Yeah, you weren't kidding when you talk about the, the reports being aimed at wildly different audiences. This one is, in fact, for sure, targeting homeowners and, and, and communities at the very grassroots level. It provides infographics with guidance that individuals can take. So literally the opposite of a CSIS briefing in this sense. Um, the steps they're calling for all have to do with fire mitigation. And like you said, some of it probably won't sound groundbreaking when set out. You know, for individual homeowners, they're advising storing wood away from your building, not having shrubs near your foundations, keeping tree branches a certain distance away. Um, but for communities, that's where it starts to get a little bit more into standards types of issues by talking about, for instance, buffer zones and, and incorporating bigger buffer zones so that fires wouldn't spread from one building to another quite as easily and not wreak as much damage if they do strike. Um, but at the homeowner level, too, I suppose, is where it starts talking about you, you could start incorporating you know, anti-fire-resistant roofing materials into your home if you have chances to do that. All of these things, though, flag the fact that there are no real standards in place for incorporating such materials, for having fire mitigation as woven into community fabrics and building design. And that is something else that they're additionally sort of calling for as well while talking about the actions that people can take right now. Yeah, not not to open up the can of worms that is the rebuilding of Lytton, British Columbia. Uh, it's it's proving to be a huge local nightmare right now since the wildfire flattened that community a couple of years ago. But that was one of the standards that was being put in place in the rebuilding of Lytton, which is to say a lot of the buildings that are going up, they're asking them and they're demanding the use. And when I say they, I mean the federal government of fire resistant mm -hmm. materials. And, 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 the, and these are the kind of conversations that need to be had in the broader conversation of climate. I know Mike, Joita, and Alex had a pretty good conversation on Friday about COP28, about, COP about the, UN climate, uh, the UN Climate Convention, and some of these recommendations about transitioning away from fossil fuels and global temperatures. But in the meantime, you can't just put your head in the ground. You've got to talk about mitigation. You've got to talk about the reality that climate change, as it currently stands, is going to continue to stand. Well, exactly. And and this is where it comes down to the fact that, no, you can't just address these issues through individual solutions. There have to be some systemic ones built in as well. And this is where standards and building codes and all these things that sound very arcane individually become important quite collectively to, to, to try and make sure that some of these fire mitigation strategies are adopted automatically and as a matter of course. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Michelle, one more topic here, and this is going over to the world of politics. Kind of, sort of. Manitoba's progressive conservatives are going to pick a new leader in the nearish future. Mm -hmm. The party is at least considering using online voting in that process. Why? Well, uh, 
it, it is indirectly because of the last leadership contest. Yeah. Um, that, that one was actually mired in, in controversy. Um, there, there were, there were lots of issues with people reporting that they didn't get their ballots and they couldn't participate in the vote until late. And there were refusals to extend voting deadlines. The, uh, the race was ultimately won by Heather Stephenson, who was premier of the province for a while, but it was not a huge margin of victory. And the woman that she defeated, Shelley Glover, actually took her to court over this, um, asserting there were irregularities in the voting process. Now, the court situation did not validate Shelley Glover's claims. They said there were no irregularities. Um, but these changes that are being contemplated right now are a result of that process. They're saying that there, there was no real way to deal with an uptick in party memberships that were surging later in the, in the leadership race. And people are now saying that maybe online voting would be a way to accommodate that. And so you don't have to deal with a, a last minute rush on mail-in ballots. So that's, this is one of the changes that's being contemplated. Another one is a, is a more uh, in the weeds kind of change to do with how votes are allocated with it when choosing a new leader. Um, but those are the two big ticketed items. And the, the online voting one, of course, was interesting to watch for all of us who have interest in, in online mm -hmm. voting being adopted anywhere in any context. And we don't have all that long to wait for this one. The, the party is going to have a special meeting on January 13th, and that's where these things will be voted on. And if adopted, online voting will be in play during the next leadership selection. You got to have an in-person vote. Talk about online voting. I, I appreciate some irony there, but yeah, <laughs> Michelle, this, these are just great it's examples. Yeah. These are just great examples of sort of the dipping in the toes of the water of online voting. There are municipalities all over the country who have started messing around with online voting or experimenting Absolutely. with online voting when it comes to their municipal and city mm -hmm. elections, with with varying levels of success. But overall, it's been quite good. Uh, whether or not it's improved uh, vote counts is an entirely different conversation. But this is sort of that next trickle up, right? You're going to start seeing it yep, popping exactly. up in the political sphere that maybe are a little bit lower stakes than a federal election or a provincial election. But it does feel like the tide is moving on this one, which I suppose isn't all the way surprising. But it's these little experiments that will eventually cause a critical mass for major movement on online voting. Exactly. We have not really seen online voting breach the provincial or federal sphere very much. And, and this is the a sort of dipping a toe in, in that way on the provincial level. Not everywhere. I mean, we just saw a big uh, leadership convention for a provincial party in Ontario and online voting was no part of the conversation there. But someone's got to start. So we'll see what Manitoba decides to do. Yeah, very Manitoba cool. Manitoba Conservatives is what we're stating. Yeah. Only the Manitoba Conservatives. Yeah, just the progressive Conservatives in this leadership race uh, individually. Hey, That's Michelle, right. yes. always great chatting with you. Looking forward to the last news panel of the year on Friday. Uh, get ready for an wow. email from me later today, a long email from me later today, where uh, you, Joey, and I will get the thread going in regards to uh, what stories will actually make it into our year in review <laughs> news panel. Standing by. Yeah, standing, yeah, exactly. On, uh, <laughs> uh, with bated breath, Michelle McQuig is standing by. Uh, Michelle, thank you for this. No, my pleasure. Take care, Dave. That's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up next, what are some ways you can make the holidays more inclusive and accessible? Marco Pasqua will offer some tips and reflects on his preparations for the holiday season. The countdown to Christmas is on. Seven days away. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.